0: Somebody asked me one time, Bill, what is the most mind melting scripture you've ever read? It took me a second to go through this is the Bible. I actually took a, a long time to answer that question because I couldn't answer it right away. But I did come to an answer, at least for me. And where I found it was in, if you want to turn here, in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus begins to talk about I will ask the father and he will send you a helper a spirit of truth Uh, not just be with you but be within you and of course if you've seen Jesus you've seen God he said you've seen me you've seen the father I and the father are one in Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10 says that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in that body. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwell in a body and in him you have been made complete. And complete's a fun word because it means complete. It means there's nothing lacking and that's who you and I are in Christ, complete, lacking in nothing. But that's not the verse that caught my attention. The verse that caught my attention was what Jesus talked about when he said in John 14, I'll ask the Father, he will send you a helper, the Spirit of truth, who not will just be with you, but in you. And, and, and then he goes on to say, and in that day, John 14, verse 20, in that day you will know I am in the Father, you are in me and I am in you. now I might have quoted that verse in my life a thousand plus times. it still gets me every time. I can't wrap my mind around that verse. I don't think any of us can. It, just when I think I grasp or I understand it, th- suddenly a, a new layer uh, starts getting pulled apart for me. The day he's talking about, by the way, you can read earlier in the chapter, is is when he's beaten death and when the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. Both of those things have happened. So what he is saying here is actually a reality that's available for you and I right now. The knowledge, the understanding, and the revelation that, listen to this, there is no distance and separation between you and God. Now, Ponder this with me for a moment. We're going to try to, I'm going to try to like just to peel this back from a number of different directions. This verse is like a diamond to me. and I like to walk around and just point out certain facets of it. And we could, we could spend all of eternity in this one reality. In that day, in other words, the day that we're standing in right now, here's a revelation that's available for you. You will know. Jesus says, first off, I am in the Father. Okay, I get that. You and the Father are one. So what's the big deal? There's so many perceptions that we have about Jesus when it comes to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and part of those perceptions that we have actually has to do with our our Christian history. Uh, We are are, uh, graced with 2,000 years of history coming down to us today. And we have some beliefs today that we've picked up along the way that actually the early church didn't have. And uh, let me explain what I'm talking about. In the Old covenant in Exodus 19, when God gave the law to Moses, in the old covenant, we started out with 10 basic commandments, which are actually 10 declarations of who we are not so that we can actually see who we are. You're not a thief. You're not a murderer. You're not an idolater. You're not. That's basically telling us who we're not. It's not commandments of what to do. It's a revelation of who we are not. It's showing us how God sees us. That's the deal. What we did is we started adding to those. And by the time Jesus shows up 1,300 years later, we've turned those 10 into 613. And they are so oppressively huge, none of us can keep them all. And so the law became an absolute crushing to the spirit and soul of mankind to the point where there's no hope in pleasing God. And Jesus doesn't applaud how complicated we've made things. He actually shows up to bring us back to simplicity. As a matter of fact, our complications have so complicated. The gospel by that point, or, or even our perceptions of God, that our perceptions of God now are simply a concept that's held in tradition that, that so blinds us to the reality of what God is like that we don't recognize him when he's standing right in front of us. As a matter of fact, we are so married to our concepts of God that when Jesus, God in the flesh, challenges our concepts, this is what we do. He's got to die. And we demonstrated our willingness as humanity to kill God to defend our concepts, which we still have a tendency to do. Well, see, now we're in a new covenant. A new covenant was introduced at a table. Jesus said, This is my blood, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you, my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, this is the new covenant. Whoa, we've been under an old covenant with God for 1,300 years. You just said the words new and covenant in the same sentence. This is big. So when did it happen? Jesus is hanging on the cross, and at one point he says this phrase, it is finished. And when he does, something amazing happened in the temple that was unprecedented. The veil between the holy of holies and all of humanity ripped from top to bottom. Now, we go, okay, wait, did that let God out, or did it let man in? And the answer is yes, to both. It was God's way of graphically saying to us, whatever barrier, it could be a curtain, it could be a concept, it could be an idea, whatever barrier is between you and me, anything in your life that creates an idea of distance and separation between me and you, where you have to do something to be right with me, is a curtain that's got to tear. See, every other other belief system on earth, every other religion on earth, and I'm pretty sure I've studied all of them. Every other belief system on earth tells you what you have to do to be right with their concept of God. But only in Christ do we get a revelation of the links to which God would go to reconcile you to himself. That's what makes the gospel stand out so differently. So when that curtain tore, suddenly there's no distance and separation between the holy of holies, the presence and the glory of God, and humanity. Now the, the crazy part about that story to me is that some priest, some priest, I don't know who, and I don't know how this went, But we know that they continued sacrificing for at least another 40 years. And that means that some priest looked at that torn veil and went, we got to put that curtain back up. Stop and think about that. You're just standing there and all this, you haven't seen behind the curtain. Only one guy gets to go behind there every year. And all of a sudden, from top to bottom, the veil is ripped. And somebody goes, oh, we got to fix that. And we still do. All kinds of curtains and concepts that we put up to create barriers and distance and separation between us and God. This is what religion does. Jesus came to tear down the veil. Religion has a way of trying to put it back up and continue on with the rituals. Those rituals that went on for the next four decades had no power in them at all. And yet, people still did it. Because that's just the way we are. And so, let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. For the first thousand years of Christianity, there was actually no such thing as atonement theory. You may have never heard that concept, but if you have, understand, there was no such thing as atonement theory because it was largely agreed upon by the church, by the body of Christ, that the cross did one thing, and that is defeated sin, death, hell, and the devil. It was it. The cross of Christ once and for all defeated the powers of darkness so that Jesus could raise from the dead and say, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And if he has all, then the devil has none. Yeah, it's super math. Simple math here. It's old math, not new math. Old math. If he has all, the devil has none. Okay? So here you have Jesus telling us what the cross is actually accomplishing. And and That was fine for the first thousand years. The new covenant was relatively uncomplicated. And then one day, in the 11th century, the Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy by the name of Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, Anselm was trying to think of an illustration to communicate to the peasants of his nation what God is like. And he grabbed a hold of his government system and he goes, ah, I'll use that as an example. And in the government system of the day, you had lords, nobles, people who had nobility and something called honor. Honor was tangible. And that honor was a big deal. Uh, Peasants had no honor. The nobles had honor. And the honor was really fragile. You could offend a lord's honor just by looking at him the wrong way. And when a Lord's honor was offended, the Lord literally could not forgive the offender. No, no. Forgiveness was seen as weak. So to restore the honor, the Lord had to demand some kind of punishment and some kind of payment. Now, Anselm saw this system and went, Aha! God is like one of our feudal Lord's. And this is what he preaches. He says, God has honor. It's called holiness. Our sin has offended his honor, his holiness. Therefore, he demands punishment and payment. Ah, but Jesus came to become the payment and the punishment for our sins. And it sounds super good. As a matter of fact, that's the gospel I think most of us grew up hearing. There was a demand of punishment and payment for the, for the dishonoring of the holiness of God. People were like, they'd say things like, I remember hearing this back in youth camp. People would say like, God cannot look on sin. He's far too holy to look on sin. And I'd raise my hand and go, so why did he go and look for Adam and Eve when they fell? It's not that God is scared to look upon sin, the gaze of the Father annihilates sin. He's not afraid of anything. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. He has no problem engaging with sinners. When he sits down at a table with them, he breaks bread with them. Why? Because his righteousness is more powerful than sin. In the old covenant under the Old Testament, if you touched a leper, you were healthy. Your health was really fragile, but that leprosy was not. And when you touched a leper, that leprosy would get on you and you would find yourself being infected by that person's disease. What does Jesus do? Under a new covenant, he goes and touches a leper, and what happens? His health actually infects that leper with healing. It's a reversal, right? And so now he's demonstrating to us the power of righteousness. In the old covenant was the power of sin. In the new covenant, it's the power of righteousness. Well, Anselm had come up with an idea just for a sermon illustration, but this sermon illustration took hold. People suddenly went, ah, God is like that. He demands punishment and payment for my sin. Jesus came to be the punishment and the payment for my sin. And it starts out good, but without realizing he did it, Anselm did two really dangerous things that have actually been carried on down to our concepts of God today. And they've created for many people a new veil of distance and separation. I find it all the time where people are striving to get closer to a God that apparently lives in you. Somewhere there's a veil. Somewhere there's a barrier. The two things Anselm did with that illustration, the first thing he did was that he fundamentally changed the definition of sin. See, prior to the 11th century... Sin was seen as very different. As a matter of fact, what he did is he attached legal and financial language to sin. Sin was now a legal and financial matter. What was it prior to that? It was seen, spiritually speaking, as a medical matter. It was not something that needed payment. It was something that needed healing. That's why when Jesus is hanging out with sinners, he's breaking bread with them and he's eating with them. The religious leaders of his day go, why are you doing that? And Jesus goes, the sick need a doctor. James 5.16 says, confess your faults, your sins one to another, and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The idea is sin is the cancer, Jesus is the cure. Sin is the disease, Jesus fixes it. That's the thing. And, you know, why didn't Jesus offer condemnation to sinners in his day? Was he soft on sin? No. It would be like going into a cancer ward and condemning people for having a disease. Jesus looked at a humanity that was diseased by sin and said, I came to bring the cure. It's my grace, my blood, and my righteousness that is, is stronger, faster, and bigger than your sin. That's the deal. It still is today. When we realize sin is an issue that needs healing, we'll stop confronting it with condemnation and instead we'll confront it with the power of God that brings healing, salvation, changes us from the inside out. It's still a medical issue. We don't know that though. Then what ends up happening is we find ourselves having to come up with a payment or a punishment And if we're still struggling, then we figure that maybe what Jesus did wasn't enough. The second thing he did, and this is far more damaging, is he took the cross that for a thousand years had been aimed at your true enemy sin, death, hell, the devil and he turned it and aimed it at the Father. Now, God was your problem. And Jesus came to rescue you from an angry dad. Now, this caused a lot of issues. It still does today. I still run into people who are like, I love Jesus, but this whole idea of the Father, freaks me out why because the father seems to be waiting at any moment just to drop the hammer on us and yet Jesus came to say no dad please don't hurt him and it, what it did, it did is it put the, the father and the son at odds with each other and, and the reality is, is that's never the way it's been the father and the son are not at odds with each other in your reconciliation Jesus did not come to rescue you from God 2 Corinthians 5 says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling means to bring unity through blood, to make one through blood. Jesus came to do something we had no power to do, and God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit single-handedly redeemed us and didn't even need our help. If you wanted to be forgiven of sin in the Old Testament, you you had to have three things. You had to have a lamb or a sacrifice. You had to have a high priest who offers the sacrifice. And then you had to have God sitting on the throne going, thumbs up, I approve. And now you get grace. But here's the deal. In Christ, according to Hebrews, he is the sacrificial lamb. He's also the great high priest and he's seated on the throne receiving the sacrifice. He does all of the stuff. So wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. What are you saying, Bill? Are you saying? Are you saying that that I don't have a part in this? Oh no, you do have a part. Say yes to the invitation. What's the invitation? To be in Christ. To be in Christ. How'd you get in Christ? First Corinthians chapter one verse thirty says, "By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus." That sort of takes our ego out of it, doesn't it? <laughs> that just sort of takes the wind out of the sails of my pride. I really wanted a part in this. By His doing, I'm in Christ. Now, how did that even happen? Well, it has a lot to do with the formation of the new covenant. And the New Covenant, I, give it, I gave it a name that actually goes back to the very earliest early church folks. They, they, uh, they didn't know of the New Testament, by the way, as the New Testament. All they had, the early church for the first few centuries, all they had was the four Gospels. They had uh, the Book of Acts, and then they had Paul's letters. Those made up what they called the New Covenant, or the Covenant of Christ. It was known as the Christic Covenant covenant that's important to understand that I think this this name to me is not just a fad I think it's a really big deal and and here's why Every time God ever made a covenant with man, the covenant was named after the man God created the covenant with. So the covenant with Moses is called the Mosaic Law. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so on and so forth. When we think of the new covenant, we don't attach a name to it typically. And a lot of times, it can subconsciously, I think, make us feel like we're the ones that created the new covenant with God when we said yes to Jesus. But that's not the way it works. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6, God says through Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah to come, I will give you as a covenant for the people. That's an important verse because it actually tells us how the new covenant is going to be created. The new covenant is not made between God and you, it's made between God the Father And God, the son, God made the new covenant with himself in Christ. Now, why is that a big deal? You didn't make it, so you can't break it. (laughs) That's why it's such a big deal. It is an unbreakable covenant everlasting, eternal reality. It's an, and you say, okay, so that started on the cross when Jesus said it is finished. Well, yeah, but we could actually, maybe you can go further back than that because Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. See, the new covenant I think has always been available. We just didn't know it. Jesus says in John 16, he goes, I have so many things. He looks at the disciples and he says, I have so many things I want to share with you, but you can't bear them now. I love that verse because that tells me that even beyond the disciples in the Bible, there's things that he wants to tell us. It's almost like he's itching. It's just, just, he's buzzing. You can feel the of the heartbeat of God going I have so much I want to tell you but you can't bear it now and then he says this but when the spirit comes when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth what is he saying You can't bear what would be released over you if I opened my mouth and said what I want to say. Why? Because every time Jesus speaks, new realities are created. Something happens. He looks at you and he speaks a word of destiny over your life. And he will always say things over you that are better than you think. You're like, I had no idea that that's who you see me to be. He says, I see you as a son, a daughter, a child of mine. I see you as a king and a priest. He said, I thought that was only for people who were born into it, kings, and people who were called into it, priests. Yes! That's who you are. See, if he told us who we really are, most of us wouldn't believe it. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit to walk us step by step into a revelation of what he's always known about you. And the treasure that he's placed within you. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. So here, you and I have this new covenant relationship with Jesus. In that day, he says, you will know, I am in the Father. I and the Father are one. We are united in harmony in your reconciliation. I am in the Father. And then he says, and, second part, you are in me. Hmm, now that's interesting. That's my identity in Christ. You know that? That's your identity. Paul said it like this. There's no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. In Colossians 3.11, he goes, hey, guess what? There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. And then he grabs these two groups of people. There are no barbarians or Scythians. That doesn't mean anything to you and I. I mean, we know the term barbarian. That's not good. But the barbarians and the Scythians were the most hated, violent people groups of Paul's day. And Paul goes, this is what I figured out. There are no slave or free. There are no Jew or Greek. There's not even any barbarians or Scythians. He says this in Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. I don't even know what you want to do with that. I don't know how to wrap my mind around that, but this is what I think Paul is saying. I've discovered that in Christ is our true identity and and in Christ transcends any costume-based identity that you've grabbed a hold of and applied to yourself. So he could look at a barbarian and go, you only think you're a barbarian. You're actually not. You know what I see in you? I see Christ. And what's happening there? Is, Is that a reality? Well, Paul chooses it as a perspective, he determines by the time he gets to writing Colossians, he determines these people, he's gonna look at people and see Christ in them before they even see him in themselves. What would it be like if we engaged people like that? In that day you'll know I am in the Father. Jesus and the Father are united in our reconciliation. And you are in me, in Christ. Is your true identity. We're gonna explore this more tomorrow night. By the way, I'll be here for two days. Then be here tomorrow night and and the next night and Monday and Tuesday night. We might take the gloves off a little bit in terms of like time and what we do. So we we so come back if you're feeling dangerous. <laughs> this is just an introduction. Okay. So so in that day you'll know I am in the Father. He and the Father are one united in reconciliation, and you are in me. In Christ is your identity, and it transcends, it elevates you above all of the limitations of race, gender, nationality, and social status. So in Christ becomes the, the great grace equalizer that lifts me up to actually believe I can be a priest and a king and the God. And I didn't even earn it. I didn't do anything to get it. It was purely a gift of grace. That's amazing. But then he finishes with this. Because just in case you think, oh, when I say yes to Jesus, it's like a drop. I just become a drop in the ocean and I just disappear. No. He finishes with this last part. And I am in you. Now, what does that mean when a holy God decides to come and live in this? It changes everything. He is the presence, the glory, the very glory of the Holy One that made the Holy of Holies the Holy of Holies. It wasn't the Holy of Holies because we put a sign on it and said it was. It was the Holy of Holies because a holy God dwelt in there. And now, (laughs) that holy God... That same holy God that was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night has chosen to come and take up residence in you. You know what that means? You are the Holy of Holies. You remember back in the old days, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, we were scared to death because if you touched the Ark, you could die. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. The ark kills your flesh. The glory of God comes in and kills your flesh, your ego, and your pride. God is firmly committed to the death of your ego. The ark is just a word, eron. It's, it's a Hebrew word that just means container. It was a container for the presence of God. But you know what? You are the eron, the ark of the new Covenant. I want you to picture this with me for a second. Just think about this for a second. Picture picture um, a priest in the old covenant and he he like get ready to go behind the the curtain and he's going to go and he's going to g- g- going to go and sprinkle blood and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people for the whole nation. One guy offers one sacrifice for a whole nation. Kind of a good deal. And of course the whole nation is wondering, is God going to accept the sacrifice? And every year he did. Now this guy goes behind the curtain and now he's literally seeing the glory of God. He's back there and there's the ark of the covenant. Now, let's just picture with me for just a half a second. This priest getting behind the veil And he looks around to make sure there's no hidden cameras. And he walks over to the ark. And he reaches out and he puts his hand on it. Nothing happens. The glory of God is literally hovering between the cherubim on the ark. It's like right there. He puts his other hand on the ark. Nothing happens. You say, did this actually happen? No, no. Just imagine this with me for a second. And then, all of a sudden, making sure nobody's looking... He hoists himself up, turns around, and sits down right on the ark. And dangles his feet off the edge. Just sitting in the glory of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm sure you're probably thinking hey, no priest would have ever done that. That would have been suicide. That would be crazy. That reveals a lie that we believe about our Father. Because when Jesus came to show us what God is like, at one point, children are coming up to him. They're crawling all over him. And the disciples go, Leave him alone, get the kids away. And Jesus goes, Whoa, let the children come to me. As a matter of fact, the kingdom belongs to them. And then he calls a child to himself and he takes that child in his arms and he blesses that child. You know what he did? Jesus Christ took that child and he pulls that child up onto his lap. You know what that child was literally doing? Sitting on the mercy seat of God. And he wasn't dying. He was being embraced by Christ. And Jesus said, unless you become like this, you can't even see the kingdom. Tracy says something years ago, I'll never forget my beautiful wife Tracy, who I hopefully you'll hear from tomorrow night, um, said uh, years ago, and it's just stuck with me all these years the next move of God is marked by childlikeness. And I think it's true. Not childishness, childlikeness. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. You can also listen again online at vanderbushministries.com or billvanderbush.com. To support the broadcast or podcast or the ministry, go to vanderbushministries.com and click the Give button. You can also find that button at billvanderbush.com as well. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.